I am going to uh, get us started. And as we said, this is a, a great new experiment for our class because uh, we haven't done Zoom before. And part of the reason that we wanted to do it on Zoom uh, was because I think a lot of people are really missing that sense of community right now and having that sense that we're all together doing this. You feel that much more on Zoom. Uh, we also will have the opportunity for a little Q&A at the end uh, if I allow us enough time and don't get carried away completely. So we'll see uh, how we do with that. Uh, but let me begin us with a word of prayer. So if you would please bow your heads, let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this time together. We thank you for this great book, Mere Christianity. We thank you for the opportunity to study it together and for the gift of this technology that allows us, at least in some sense, to be able to be together uh, in this uh, pilgrimage through this book. Lord, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts to you, that you would guide us, that you would use this time together to deepen our faith in you, to increase our knowledge of you and our understanding of what it means to follow you and to live for you in the midst of the culture and the challenges in which we find ourselves today. We pray your blessing on our time, and we pray all of this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I am very excited uh, about this particular book, and I'm going to try to see if I can get the PowerPoint to come up uh, where you can all see it. So if you can see the PowerPoint, give me a thumbs up. All right, good. So you'll see here that the, the subtitle for this class is Timely Truth for a Hurting World. And that is something I wanted to talk about just for a moment, because one of the issues in our culture today is the whole idea of what is true. And this particular book of Lewis's does a wonderful job of really leaning into what the truth is, not just the truth of the gospel, but truth in the philosophical sense as well. And it is truth that is a truth that stands for eternity and that responds to a lot of the needs that we have today in this hurting world. And as usual, uh, we have a scripture verse that's gonna be our theme verse. And I would like to invite you to say this uh, aloud with me, uh, even though you're muted, you can hear yourself say it, uh, which will be a good thing. And this verse is from 2 Peter 1. It may not be quite so familiar to you, uh, but I would love for us to be able to say this together. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. 
I'm very tempted to preach a sermon on this right now, but I'm not going to do that because that's not what you signed up for. But I do want to just point out one little thing. We're going to unpack different parts of this each week. But think about this idea. How many of you would love to have grace and peace multiplied in your life right now? I think all of us would raise our hand to that. And the wonderful thing here is it talks about this grace and peace is multiplied to us as we embrace the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And the word for knowledge here is a little bit of an unusual word in the New Testament. It's epignosis, and it's a word that really means deep knowledge. It's the word that St. Paul uses in Corinthians when he says, we see through a glass darkly, but we shall then see face to face. And then he says, I know in part, but then I will know in full as I am fully known. And this word knowledge here is that same word as know in full. And I think mere Christianity is a great gift and that it helps us to broaden and deepen our knowledge of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And that as the verse says, all things that pertain to life and godliness that come through our knowing of Christ. So uh, that's the end of the sermon for right now. But uh, we will be moving ahead uh, through that verse each class. And before we get into the how to approach the class, uh, we're going to continue to have a little musical excerpt each week uh, that I want you to try to figure out what it is and what it might have to do with what we are studying. And the one tonight is not actually music, it's something else, but I'm going to play a little bit of it and hopefully you can hear it and see if you can figure out what in the world this is and then hold on to it and think about what does this have to do with anything? And I promise you, it does actually have something to do with what we're talking about. Skogbrannen härjer i Kalifornien. 25 människor är nu bekräftade omkomna och fler än 100 är savnade. Världens mäktigaste statsledare har samlat i Paris på dagen 100 år efter första världskriget blev avslutat. Frankrikes president advarte mot ökande nationalism. Car le patriotisme est l'exact contraire du nationalisme. Le nationalisme en est la trahison. Okay, so that was a little different. It was not the choir of King's College, Cambridge, just in case you were wondering. Uh, does anybody have any idea what that might be? Do you want to send me a chat if you think you know what it is? Okay, those are some good guesses. We have a guess of German propaganda radio, um, French or German um, the guy speaking French said something about nationalism being treason, which is exactly right. Um, it's a little bit tricky because there, there are two different languages in here uh, that are part of what we were listening to, one of which was French, but the other one was not German. It was not German. Uh, it was not war propaganda. And so you're just going to have to wait for a little while, and I will tell you later what it is. So in terms of how to approach this class, uh, those of you that have been in previous classes already know this, but uh, I am just delighted to have you uh, at whatever level you would like to be involved. 
And there are three ways you can be involved in this class. The first one is what I call on the beach. And what that means is you're just kind of sitting there, you've got a drink, uh, you are enjoying yourself. You may or may not be paying attention. You might be dozing off, uh, but you're, you're here and you're absorbing whatever you feel like you want to absorb. Um, you're not going to read anything. You're just going to kind of listen in. You're going to be there. And uh, I hope that that will be a blessing to you. However, if you are somebody that wants to get in the water a little bit, we would like to invite you to snorkel. And if you would like to snorkel, what that means is you sit on the beach until you see that wave that looks like it's really refreshing. And you get your little uh, goggles and your little pipe and you decide, I'm going to go in the water for that one. And so for that, you might want to actually read the chapter in the book. Uh, you might want to look at a handout or a link that goes along with that lesson. And then you might want to go back to sitting on the beach for a while. Snorkeling means you're kind of drifting in and out. Scuba diving, on the other hand, means that you jump in with both feet and with your air tanks on because some of the rabbit holes that I may send you down might be fairly deep ones. Uh, but if you are enthusiastic about this material, uh, I will be giving you links and some articles and other things from time to time that will enable you to go really deeply into the book if you want to do that. But there's no judgment, whatever level you want to engage. I'm just delighted for you to be here and pray that God will use it as a blessing in your life. So I want to talk a little bit about how to read this book. When I first read Mere Christianity, I really didn't like it. I know that's a shocking admission, but I really didn't like it because I didn't really get it. And part of the problem was that I read it when I was in college. And the way that I usually read books is I block a couple of hours and I just sit down and read all the way through. And that's what I did with Mere Christianity. And it didn't work for me. And later, when I learned that the book had originally been given as radio broadcasts, I understood why that hadn't really worked for me very well. And I understood that each little chapter, there are 31 chapters, each one has got a couple of really major thoughts and themes that are pretty deep and pithy that deserve to be thought about. So I think the very best way to read this book, if you are uh, going to read along with us, is to try reading it out loud. Yes, people may stare at you if you're in public, but what a great conversation starter. You can do uh, whatever you want in terms of reading aloud, uh, but it will help you be at the pace that this material was originally delivered. Remember, Lewis was speaking this over the radio. So if you read it out loud, that will, I think, help you get a grasp on the ideas. I'd also really encourage you to read with a highlighter or pencil or pen in hand to mark passages that stand out to you and only do one chapter at a time. Even if you're dying to go read the next chapter, don't do it. Just say no. Give yourself a little bit of time to think about it, to pray over it. And then lastly, I want to recommend this great resource that some of you have heard me talk about before. If you go on YouTube, uh, there's a great channel that's called the C.S. Lewis Doodle. And I don't know who the guy is who does this, but he is a genius. And he takes a lot of Lewis's works, uh, including Mere Christianity, and does a short little video doodle where he takes the 
primary ideas out of the chapter and then illustrates them and writes about the main points. So I would encourage you to do that uh, as well. It can be a great way uh, to get a handle on what's going on. So I wanna talk a little bit about how we're gonna engage the book. And the first thing is those of you that have a um, guilty conscience that feel like you should have read this book already. I mean, we announced this class over a month ago, you should have read it, what's wrong with you, you're behind. Um, just let go of all of that. Uh, you are not behind. We are not actually gonna start into the book tonight or even next time, uh, because the background of this book and the context of it is unbelievably important in understanding what Lewis is actually trying to accomplish here. So uh, feel free, feel joyful. Um, you're not behind. Uh, there's no homework assignment yet. Um, you are uh, free and easy right now. So uh, don't worry about that. And as we start moving into some of the context, it is a great thing that we've been able to study the screw tape letters right before we were doing this particular book, because screw tape and mere Christianity were written in essentially the same period. It's that darkest part of World War II in England. Uh, 1939 to 1941, and uh, particularly the 19, late 1940 to 1941 period, both Screwtape and Mere Christianity are being written by Lewis, and in some ways, they are two sides of the same coin. We talked in Screwtape about all of the habits that we wanted to develop to annoy the devil, and one of the chief habits that you'll remember if you were in that class was the habit of learning to think Christianly, learning to think Christianly and to connect your thinking and your doing. Well, mere Christianity is a great example of what would happen if we actually thought Christianly, the kinds of things that we would think about, the framework that we would build for understanding what it means to follow Jesus, the framework that we would build intellectually and philosophically to understand our faith, to be able to think Christianly in the fullest sense of that word. So I think, particularly if you've done screw tape before this, you're gonna find that mere Christianity is incredibly rich because it will help uh, flesh out a lot of what we talked about in the class before. Uh, if you didn't do the screw tape class before uh, and you would like to, it's all out there on podcast and on the St. Philip's YouTube channel. So just a couple of things about Mere Christianity and why it is such an amazing book. Uh, it's a book that's a classic in the fullest and best sense of that word, not a classic in the sense of a fusty old dust-covered boring book with uh antiquated illustrations on the cover, but a classic in the C.S. Lewis sense, that great wisdom from the past that we should not be so foolish as to throw out. And one of the remarkable things about it is that this book, even though it was written about 80 years ago, each year continues to sell more copies than it did the year before. It sold almost 20 million copies just in English. It's been translated into over 30 languages. 
one of the remarkable things about it is that some of you who are interested in uh, the growth of Christianity and other cultures know that there has been kind of a revival in mainland China. And an interesting fact about that is that many of the people who are leaders in that revival cite the Chinese translation of mere Christianity as one of the major things that helped bring them to the faith. There also was a really interesting poll uh, that was done by Christianity Today uh, asking people uh, and pastors and theologians and university professors in theology what they considered to be the most influential Christian book of the 20th century. And mere Christianity won that contest by such a huge margin that they were shocked. The other thing that's interesting is that when a similar poll was done worldwide, mere Christianity was in the top five Christian books of all time. Uh, the number one ended up being St. Augustine's Confessions. Uh, and Mere Christianity was right behind that. So it is a book that is revered by all sorts of people, um, scholars and others, and one that continues to be read. And I think perhaps the most interesting thing about Mere Christianity's fame is that it was instrumental in the conversion or the deepening of the Christian faith of all sorts of really amazing people. Chuck Colson, who was the Dirty Tricks lawyer in the Nixon White House, uh, was converted through reading Mere Christianity. Francis Collins, the director of the National Institutes of Health, uh, the one who headed the Human Genome Project and mapped human DNA, was converted through reading Mere Christianity. Thomas Monahan, who founded Domino's, uh, was converted through meeting, reading Mere Christianity. Tim Keller, John Piper, N.T. Wright, Alistair McGrath, J.I. Packer, and Peter Kraft all say that they were led to a deeper and more meaningful level of following Jesus through reading Mere Christianity. And one of the other statistics about the book that I think is fascinating is that a couple of years ago, there was a research project that was done about books that are good to give people who are not Christians to help them think about what it might mean to follow Jesus. And it looked at a couple of different books. It looked at Tim Keller's Reason for God, John Stott's Basic Christianity, uh, Tom Wright's uh, Simply Christian. And the interesting thing is that through all of their surveys and test groups, mere Christianity always won out. And the reason for that was that people said the analogies in this book the analogies and the illustrations were so compelling, and there were so many of them, um, over twice as many than in the next book like that. So we're going to be talking a lot about those analogies as we go through. But another reason I'm really excited about this book is that when you look at the context in which it was written, it is amazing about how there are similarities that make this message resonate with us today. Most of us who are in the United States do not really have a good understanding about what it was like in England in this period of 1939 to the end of World War II and that time leading up to the war. And it's interesting because when you really dig deep into it, you will see that it is astounding how similar 
it is to where we find ourselves in our country today. Yeah, we are not at war where there are bombs dropping from the sky, but there are many things that are similar. So the first thing is, is a time of major stress and severe political conflict, which of course we're seeing that in our own country. But in England, although we don't realize it now because we think of Churchill as such a hero, um, Churchill was in the minority. The idea of appeasement, appeasing Hitler, which was led by Neville Chamberlain, the prime minister, was very, very popular. It was the official position of the royal family, big business, the House of Lords, the clergy of the Church of England, and this idea that appeasement was wrong and needed to be stopped and uh, stopped with war. Um, there was really heated conflict about that. Remember, they're just coming out of World War I. People thought that was the war to end all wars. And so there was huge political conflict, name-calling bitterness, anger, division in the country about the best way to deal with this huge crisis of Hitler. Not that that might sound familiar, that there's division and anger and bitterness about how to deal with the national crisis. Also, many people were displaced from their homes and their workplaces. All of their daily routines were displaced. Uh, many businesses had closed. Um, people were um, not able to go to their workplaces. Some people tried to carry on working from home, but remember there were no computers back then, but there was this huge sense of loss of employment going on. Um, many schools had closed, children were displaced. Uh, many of them were actually sent away from their families. Houses of worship and other places of public assembly were closed or they were felt to be unsafe. Um, there was massive fear for the future. People were afraid to go outside because you never knew when the bombs might fall. Um, there was darkness and despair. There was fear of death. There was doubt in the goodness of God. And people felt like it was the end of the world as we know it. That all the assumptions they had made about their futures all seemed to be in play. And that there was no telling uh, what the future might hold. So as you can see, Many of those things, many of those conditions are very similar to where we find ourselves today in the United States and indeed around the world. And Lewis's message in this book is a message to people that are in a time of challenge to cut through all of those things and think about what really matters, to get to that question, that class that you never got to take in school about what is the meaning of life. And that's what this book really gets at. And I think that's part of why it continues to resonate so much with people. I want to talk just briefly about the title. Lewis stole the title from someone else. This is not his own invention. Uh, that makes me feel better uh, that Lewis borrowed things from other people sometimes as well. And so here he borrowed from Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter is one of those people that if Lewis were alive and he were speaking to you tonight, he would say, go read Richard Baxter. He's someone who's been forgotten, who shouldn't have been forgotten. So Richard Baxter wrote a lot about the essentials of Christianity. He lived in the 17th century from 1615 to 1691. The clergy that founded St. Philip's in 1680 
would have been very familiar with Richard Baxter. Uh, he was one of the most prominent Protestant clergymen in England. Uh, and he did a huge amount of writing, 160 different books. And he had a big impact on William Wilberforce, that great hero of the faith who helped to uh, combat uh, the slave trade. And William Wilberforce called Baxter's writings a treasury of Christian wisdom. So if you want to uh, begin to snorkel or scuba dive, uh, you might want to read a little Richard Baxter. I'll send you some links uh, in the email after class. But the quotation that the, the title of Lewis's book comes from is from a book that I would bet you no one in their right mind would ever choose to read. Church History of the Government of Bishops. Sounds like a real page turner. Uh, but Lewis had read that just like he read everything else from the 17th century. And this quotation is a fabulous one and one that I hope all of us uh, who are Christians will try to reclaim this. He says, I am a Christian, a mere Christian of no other religion. And the church that I am of is the Christian church and hath been visible wherever the Christian religion and church hath been visible. But must you know what sect or party I am of? I am against all sects and all dividing parties. And the point that he's making here is that his identity is rooted in his faith in Jesus Christ and following Jesus and being a Christian, being part of the church militant, that visible body of believers. And that is a, a good word for us today in the church. So I want to do a uh, very quick run through of a timeline here. I'm not going to comment on this too much, but this timeline is so important because until you really kind of can get yourself into the footsteps of people walking around in England in 1939 to 1941, you're not going to feel the full impact of mere Christianity. So 1939, Lewis is a professor at Oxford, and he starts writing his first apologetics book called The Problem of Pain. And he was asked to do this for a pamphlet series uh, by a guy named Ashley Sampson. And even though war had not been declared yet, this was the buildup to the war. You can see Tolkien did a three-day program training for codes and ciphers. Uh, August 31st, they started evacuating civilians from London. September 1st, Germany invaded Poland. Lewis's brother called up for active duty. September 2nd, four evacuee children from London arrived at the Kilns, uh, which, of course, is some of the genesis of the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, and one of the little known things about Lewis is that he kept evacuee children all through World War II with all the other craziness he had going on. September 2nd, uh, Charles Williams, uh, the great friend of Lewis, and the whole Oxford University Press moved out of central London next to St. Paul's Cathedral because of the imminent war. And then finally, on September 3rd, uh, England and France declared war on Germany. So January 8th, 1940, rationing begins in England, affecting daily life. Um, Charles Williams joins Oxford University officially. Lewis publishes The Problem of Pain. 
and it is read and lauded by a guy that you've probably never heard of called the Reverend James Welch. Probably not somebody right on the tip of your tongue. But he is the man who really is responsible for the fact that all of us are here tonight uh, looking at this book. Because without James Welch, mere Christianity would never have happened. James Welch was head of religious broadcasting for the BBC. And we're going to talk a lot about the BBC tonight and next week uh, because it was instrumental in giving birth to what became this book. James Welch did not know C.S. Lewis. He'd never met him. But when he read The Problem of Pain, his heart was deeply moved by it. His intellect was grasped, um, as he said, just taken uh, by what Lewis wrote at such a deep level uh, that he became a huge admirer of Lewis. So in May of that year, uh, the Nazis invade France, Belgium, and the Netherlands, and Churchill is named prime minister because Neville Chamberlain resigns uh, as soon as that happens. So right after that, May 26th, the Dunkirk evacuations begin. If you haven't watched the movie Dunkirk, uh, that's a great movie to watch that and The Darkest Hour. Um, those are also going to be in the email of ways to snorkel or scuba dive because they will help you understand. Uh, June the 3rd, the Germans bombed Paris. The Dunkirk evacuation ends July 5th. Lewis has the idea for the screw tape letters. He's listened to uh, Hitler give a broadcast talk the night before. He overslept and had to go to late church, which he hated doing because he didn't think the minister preached very well at the late service. He was bored during the sermon. And so as he was doodling, he had the idea for the screw tape letters. And as I've said before, this gives me great hope as a clergyman that when I preach a dog of a sermon, that the Lord will use it anyway, and maybe something wonderful will result from it. So uh, July the 10th, the Battle of Britain begins in the first German air raids on London. Uh, August 25th, the British air raids on Germany begin. And then September 7th, the German Blitz begins. And I want to just pause here for a moment. We've all heard of the Blitz, but we have no idea about what this was like. I'm going to try to find a video clip to send in the email. But on the first day of the Blitz, 348 bombers and 617 fighter planes flew in formation and began to bomb London. Now, just think about that. That is almost a thousand airplanes. Think of looking up in the sky and seeing the sky as far as you could see in any direction, dark with these planes. And think of the huge noise of all of those planes. It must have seemed like the end of the world. And this blitz continued until May 11th of 1941. And indeed, the bombing continued until 1945. But just during the eight months of the Blitz, 43,000 civilians were killed, men, women, and children. One out of every six Londoners was made homeless, and at least 1.1 million houses and flats were damaged or destroyed. So it was an unbelievably horrific period and indeed a very dangerous period. This is why people were afraid to go anywhere 
because the bombings happened in the daytime and the nighttime. You just never knew when you were going to have bombs start falling out of the sky. So the BBC was headquartered in central London um, in the area called the West End on Langham Place. And Langham Place, some of you will be familiar with John Stott, one of the great figures of evangelicalism. John Stott for years was the rector of All Souls Langham Place, which is immediately next door to the BBC headquarters broadcasting house and across the street from the Langham Place Hotel. Well, BBC headquarters was one of the major targets for the Nazi bombers because they wanted to knock out the broadcasting ability of the British people to inspire panic and fear. So the broadcasting house was bombed over and over again, and the area around it was bombed over and over again. Uh, The broadcasting house was struck by bombs multiple times. People were killed. Studios were destroyed. Um, November 14th was that massive, awful German bombing of Coventry. December 8th, uh, Broadcasting House and All Souls Church struck by bombs. December 29th, more massive German bombing. February 7th, 1941, James Welch sends this fateful letter to C.S. Lewis. And he goes on and on about how much he loved the problem of pain uh, and thought that Lewis was the person to speak to the nation in this dire time. More on that in a minute. And then April 9th, Lewis gave his first wartime RAF talk. More about that in a minute, too. Um, This talk had the unfortunate title of Pauline Soteriology. Do you get that? Pauline Soteriology. Uh, If you were a young man getting ready to go up in a fighter plane, thinking you might not come back alive, Pauline Soteriology is probably not the top thing that you would want to hear about. But Lewis learned so much from that that was a huge boon in the screw to, I'm sorry, in um, mere Christianity. So we'll talk about that in a minute too. Uh, May the 2nd of that year, Lewis starts publishing the screw tape letters as a serial in The Guardian. May the 10th, massive German bombing again, all around BBC headquarters. There was a huge hall called the Queen's Hall next door to Broadcasting House, sort of like Royal Albert Hall is today, one of the major places for concerts. It was utterly destroyed by the German bombs. June the 8th, Lewis delivered the Weight of Glory sermon in Oxford, and August 6th, the first BBC talk by Lewis. So I want to just pause there for a minute, because most of us don't just have never really thought about this, but Lewis, when he came to give these talks, he was leaving the comparative safety of Oxford. He was getting on a train, and because the talks had to be broadcast live, he had to go to Broadcasting House, one of the major targets of the German bombers. So he was literally taking his life in his hands every time he went to do one of these talks. And as the trains would approach London, you could see the flames and the smoke from the bombs. Um, And this uh, invitation that he had came right after uh, some of the worst bombing of the area around Broadcasting House. When Lewis went in for these first lectures, for this first broadcast talk, 
The front of the building was blown out. There were sandbags all around the entrance that he had to climb through. Um, it was an incredible act of bravery to even go to this place to do these talks. So 1944, jumping forward, that's when D-Day happens. It's a long time from 1941 to 1944. And remember, all that bombing is still going on. 1945, March 29th, the last German bombing. And then Churchill declares VE Day on May the 8th. And Lewis gave his last RAF talk that summer. So as you can see, these broadcast talks are taking place at the height of World War II in the hour of crisis in the British nation. So I want us to look a little bit at uh, Lewis and the BBC and the origins here of mere Christianity, because getting your head around this is really important in understanding why Lewis does what he does and how he uh, structures this book. So as I said before, BBC headquarters was a big target for the German bombers. Uh, employees had been killed, studios and equipment wrecked. Um, there's a famous uh, recording of a bomb that fell during a broadcast. And in the best British tradition, you hear all this <laughs> in the background and the, the announcer just pauses briefly and keeps going. So in other news and just keeps going, it is the most astounding thing. Um, some of you may have seen the newsreels of Edward R. Murrow, the famous American reporter, uh, broadcasting during the Blitz, and he was on the roof of the same BBC building. Um, James Welch, who we talked about, who was head of director, the director of religious broadcasting at the BBC, had gone to Bristol because he thought it might be safer there. But when they were doing their Sunday evening religious broadcast, they were bombed and narrowly escaped. But Welch was determined that the BBC urgently needed to get out a message about faith in the midst of these harrowing times. And when he said faith, he didn't mean faith in yourself or speaking your own truth or any of those kinds of things we hear about in our culture. What he meant was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at first, he thought the best way to do that was through the church. And as a clergyman, I say, God bless him for having thought that, but he should have known better. And he went to the Archbishop of Canterbury, who had such a cool name, Cosmo Lang. Wouldn't you like to be named Cosmo Lang? But Cosmo Lang uh, was invited by James Welch to give an address to the nation in this time that was so full that people were scared to death. They thought that they were going to die. It was the end of their country. And he wanted for Cosmo Lang to bring a message of hope. He even outlined for Cosmo Lang what he hoped he would say. But instead, Lang did his own thing. And as James Welch had uh, an assistant named Eric Finn, who was not as polite as James Welch was, and Eric Finn said that Cosmo Lang's address was completely vapid and totally irrelevant, that it was absolutely no help. And in fact, Cosmo Lang was one of those who was closely allied with Neville Chamberlain. Uh, he was a big advocate of appeasement. And Welch was just extremely frustrated. And as he wrote in 1941, in a time of uncertainty and questioning, does that sound like a time we might know of? In a time of uncertainty and questioning, 
It is the responsibility of the church and of religious broadcasting as one of its most powerful voices to declare the truth about God and his relation to men. It has to expound the Christian faith in terms that can be easily understood by ordinary men and women, and to examine the ways in which that faith can be applied to present-day society during these difficult times. He had a burning passion to get the gospel out to ordinary people so that they could understand why it makes all the difference to hope in Jesus, not just for the next life, but for this life as well. And so as Welch was thinking and his frustration and trying to think of what to do, he thought of C.S. Lewis. And Welch was somebody who was very well connected with the power structure in England, but he didn't know Lewis at all other than the book that he had written. And he took this very bold step, uh, which was something, as the British would say, not done, not done. He, it was not done to write someone like that and ask them to do something like this when you hadn't even been introduced. So he wrote Lewis in the midst of the Blitz to ask for his help, to invite him to come to the BBC headquarters, the bomb target, um, to give talks during this period. And in the letter, Welch said this, the microphone is a limiting and often irritating instrument, but the quality of thinking and the depth of conviction, which I find in your book, ought surely to be shared with a great many other people. And for any talk, we can be sure of a fairly intelligent audience of more than a million. So he's flattering Lewis, but Lewis might have been thinking a little bit about some of these scenes that you're seeing on your screen. Uh, that first scene uh, with the streams of water is the uh, morning after the Langham Place Hotel about 50 yards from the BBC headquarters had been bombed by the Germans and a huge fire had broken out. The gas main had broken and the building had literally, the front of it had exploded off. And if you look in the other picture, um, you will see that same hotel um, after a different bomb strike before the one that you see there. Uh, and you'll see BBC Broadcasting House there right next to it. And you'll see all the debris in the street. So this is a big ask. This is not like asking somebody to come to the Rotary Club and talk at a lunch meeting. This is asking somebody to literally come into the worst part of the war where they might be killed in order to give an address. And you can see here um, the picture with the gaping hole there on the seventh floor. This was from a parachute bomb. That's the BBC headquarters. The parachute bomb dropped through, it was so heavy, it dropped through all of the top floors of the building, killing people on its way until it got to the studios on the seventh floor where it exploded and blew out all of the walls. You can see the interior picture there on the right. Uh, you can see all of the debris blown out from the building. This is what Lewis was going into to give these talks. That would get your attention. But one of the things that is so interesting to me about this that uh, I didn't really know about, I, I confess I've been really nerding out about this, if you want to learn more about this slide, call me up and I'll talk to you for about five hours about it. I'm not going to do that tonight. But 
Uh, the history of the BBC is fascinating. Um, it is the oldest national broadcaster, the largest broadcaster in the world, now having over 22,000 employees. But what a lot of people don't realize is that part of its original charter in 1922 was religious broadcasting. And this was not diverse religious broadcasting. This was Christian religious broadcasting. And the first, one of the first broadcasts on the BBC was a radio sermon. And the first director general, that's the British word for CEO, Sir John Reith was appointed in 1927. He was the son of a Presbyterian minister. And he strongly believed that it was a public service duty of the BBC as the broadcasting arm of an avowedly Christian nation to actively promote religion, i.e. Christianity. And the coat of arms of the BBC included a motto adapted from Micah 4, nation shall speak peace to nation. And during World War II, that was changed to the Latin word quaequenque, which means whatsoever, which is a reference to Philippians 4.8, whatsoever is true, whatsoever is honorable, whatsoever is just, whatsoever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever is worthy of praise, think on these things. More about that in a minute. So Reith is the one who set up the organization of the BBC, made strong Christian emphasis uh, part of the fabric of this organization. And this carried on when the BBC went into television as well. And there's still a legal requirement today that the BBC devote a specified amount of broadcasting time to religious content. And the interesting thing is that we forget uh, that the UK is still an avowedly Christian nation. The queen is the head of the church and the country is officially a Christian nation. But they were living into that much more back in this period. And there are certain traditions of the BBC that are still carrying on today um, the religious broadcasting began very early on. The first entire church service was from St. Martin's in the Field on Trafalgar Square in London. Choral Evensong going back to 1926. The first daily service from 1928. And the first Sunday half hour um, encouraging scripture broadcast in July 1940. And the daily service, which is a daily service of Christian prayer and worship, uh, is the oldest, long, the longest running program of its kind anywhere in the world that's been broadcast daily since 1929. So the BBC is very involved with religious broadcasting. It certainly does lots of other things now, but that's still part of it. But I want to look a little bit at the architecture of this building because architecture is strongly connected with mission here. And so if you see that picture uh, with the inscription, see the inscription up there uh, on the wall. Um, that is what you see right when you walk through the front door of Broadcasting House. And under the inscription, there's a statue. And you can see a detail of the statue there on the left. And if you uh, think about that statue, you can see the young man is putting his hand into a bag and he is getting ready to... Uh, do something. And what he's getting ready to do is to sow the seed. 
The statue is called the sower, taken from Jesus's parable of the sower. So that's kind of cool that that's what you see right when you come in, because uh, you think about broadcasting seed uh, in BBC, the broadcasting house, but it gets even better than that. If you look at the inscription, uh, you can read it in Latin if you would like to, uh, but I've put the translation there um, down at the bottom. But you will notice that it says that this temple of arts and muses is dedicated to Almighty God. And it talks about their prayer, the prayer of the governors, that this would bring forth a good harvest and that it would bring to the ear whatever, whatsoever things are beautiful and honest and of good report, that it might lead on the path of wisdom and uprightness. Now, that is astounding. That sounds like something that you might find in St. Philip's Church, um, that the mission is to broadcast the word of God, um, to bring forth a harvest, uh, to lead people into thinking about what is beautiful and true and good. And what's even better is if you look at the inscription that's at the bottom, right under the guy's feet on the statue of the sower, it says, Deus incrementum dot, God giveth the increase which is 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3. So you walk into the BBC and you are overwhelmed with images that relate to the gospel, with the sowing of the word of God, the word of truth. And when you understand that, it helps you to understand a little bit more about uh, why Lewis was willing to do this and why he was the one that they asked. So I'm going to fly through this next part because we're about to run out of time. So Lewis uh, replied very quickly to this letter, even though it was a letter of something that was not done. Lewis replied, and he agreed, which is pretty astounding. And then they carried on a dialogue, which is so cool. I'd love to read all of these letters to you about the content and form. And at first, there was some chance that this might have been about a Christian view of literature, uh, we can be very thankful, although that would have been interesting that that's not what they did and that they did this instead. But Lewis, when he wrote, said that he wanted to um, do things differently from what Welch had initially proposed. Lewis said this, it seems to me that the New Testament, by preaching repentance and forgiveness, always assumes an audience who already believe in the law of nature and know they have disobeyed it. In modern England, we cannot at present assume this, and therefore most apologetic begins a stage too far on. The first step is to create or recover the sense of guilt. Hence, if I gave a series of talks, I should mention Christianity only at the end and would prefer not to unmask my battery till then. And what Lewis is saying here is that the gospel is not good news until you realize that you've got a problem. If you think you've got it all together, that all you have to do is to speak your truth and be self-actualized, the gospel doesn't really make a difference. But if you understand that there is a God, that there's a truth with a capital T, a good with a capital G, and that you have failed to be able to live that way, then you start getting interested. So the whole first part of mere Christianity is about helping us understand who we are, a, a right view, a true view of our own situation. And so Lewis began this series of talks 
um, that were live talks 10 to 15 minutes long. And he eventually agreed to do four series and they were 25 addresses, about six hours of audio. And almost all of them were given live. And it was a very, very difficult assignment. Because of the war, the British were really anxious to ensure that no information be given by anyone that might damage morale or be helpful to the enemy. So they had to get Lewis to sound as if he was speaking spontaneously, but to actually be working word for word from a script. And the astounding thing is that Lewis had to have these scripts submitted to the censor and have them stamped with his approval and signature. And if he deviated by even one word, he risked having the thing turned off. And what Lewis did is he memorized the scripts so that he could deliver them with passion. Um, But the interesting thing, and this goes back to what we listened to early on, the first slot that they found was a real dog. The first broadcast was given right after a propaganda broadcast of the news in Norwegian. So what you were listening to earlier today was the broadcast of the evening news from Oslo, Norway. Uh, So that was what people were listening to. So the people that were already on the radio were people that wanted to hear the news in Norwegian. And if they tuned in early, there was a Welsh cultural program afterwards in the Welsh language. Probably not the greatest slot for getting a big uh, listenership. But despite that, the first talk, Right and Wrong is a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe, went really well, and Lewis was soon moved to a much better time slot, one that drew as many as a million listeners at a time. And one of my favorite memories, some of you have heard me talk about my mentor's mother-in-law, Lady Elizabeth Catherwood, uh, who was one of Lewis's pupils at Oxford. And one time when I was visiting with her, she was recounting to me that once these broadcasts had moved to Sunday afternoon, um, that she would uh, run home, even if the air raid sirens were going to try to get there to gather with her family and from the wireless in their living room to listen to Lewis's talks. It's an amazing thing to think about what a lifeline these talks were to the British people. So um, we are going to stop there tonight, and we're going to um, go back to just one uh, slide before we open up for some questions, if anyone has some. And what I want us to do is to look at this quotation that is the ending part of mere Christianity. And I would encourage you to say this with me because this is sort of the summation of what this book is about. And it is profound. So I'd invite you to say this with me. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you 
that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great truth that when we give up our lives, that you give us a life that is eternal, a life that is of your kingdom, a life that is filled with meaning and purpose and joy. Lord, we pray that as we go on this pilgrimage through this book, that you would use the truth drawn from your scripture through the pen of your servant, C.S. Lewis, to help illuminate our lives, that we might live out the truth of these words and to live out the truth of those words from Second Peter about the knowledge of God. Lord, that as we grow in that knowledge, that we would grow in love for you and for our neighbor, and that you would use us to be salt and light in this world. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So thank you for hanging in there with all of that. Uh, I hope that you are still awake. Uh, Anybody that would like to hang out for a little bit, uh, maybe 10 minutes or so, if you have any questions, um, I would be happy to try to address those. Uh, You can send those uh, in the chat and I will see if I can find them. Uh, I wanted to uh, just say, I I saw there was a little message from Stephanie that she had recently read Eric Larson's book, The Splendid and the Vile, uh, which I would highly commend. I'm going to send a couple of book recommendations. That one is really terrific, and it really highlights the uh, similarities between the period in which we're living and uh, the period that Lewis was writing in. There also is a really terrific book, oddly enough, by Boris Johnson. Uh, Whatever you may think of his politics, uh, he is an excellent writer. And I did not realize uh, that he was well known in the UK as a writer before he went into politics. He has an excellent book about Churchill uh, that I would commend to you as well. So uh, with that, uh, if you have any questions that you would like to send in chat, uh, please feel free. Um, So again, that first book is called The Splendid and the Vile, V-I-L-E. And uh, just to give a little plug for that, part of what I love about that book is it is a, a little bit of a social history. And so it tries to explain about what it was like to have day-to-day life uh, when these bombs are falling and it seems like the world is ending. And there's a very poignant scene where Churchill um, and his secretary and some other family friends go to one of those storied uh, English country houses for a country house weekend. And they're in this beautiful mansion with all these servants and acres of gardens. And when they are uh, finished with breakfast, someone suggests that they go out uh, and have a game of tennis. But as they're talking about whether they'd like to do that as breakfast is being cleared, they hear all of this noise and they go out into the garden and there's a German fighter plane and a British fighter plane having a dog fight over the garden and it looks like they may crash into the house at any moment. So they're all thinking that they might die, that this might be the end of their lives. 
And then suddenly one of the planes takes off over the horizon and is chased by the other and it's quiet again. And they don't really know what to do. So they just stand there awkwardly looking at each other. And then somebody says, tennis, anyone? And it, it just sort of captures that whole surreal atmosphere um, that's like this pandemic, um, like that time during World War II. So I would commend that to you. I will, uh, in the email, uh, be sending to you uh, a number of different recommendations of things to watch or read if you would like to get more context. Because really, the, uh, I keep saying this, but the more that you understand uh, the context of what's going on in England during this time period, uh, you will find that the uh, material in mere Christianity will seem that much richer. All right, so I'll give it a minute or two to see if any other questions appear. Uh, remember that there is not a homework assignment yet, uh, so you can uh, still be living easy for the next week uh, before you start reading. So uh, Cynthia was asking, what was the French broadcast, broadcast clip at the beginning? That was actually part of the Norwegian news, believe it or not. Uh, and there was a uh, news clip because there was a conference being held in Norway about the difference between nationalism and patriotism uh, and the whole concept of uh, what fascism actually is and when uh, you cross the line from patriotism to fascism and all of that. Uh, so that's that's what that was uh, talking about, which... Uh, it's interesting because we think sometimes that when we, when we hear discussions like that in our own country, that it's only here that those discussions are happening, but it really is not just here. Uh, it is a phenomenon uh, around the world that's being talked about. I, I still want to go back and see who that guy was because he had the most lovely French accent. So have to check that out. All right. Well, seeing no questions, uh, let me just thank you again for being here tonight. Uh, if you are not on my email list, please go to the St. Philip's website and uh, send me an email or send one to our general mailbox and we'll get you signed up on the email list so that after each class, you'll get the follow-up with the extra materials. So looking forward uh, to going through this book with you. And I would encourage you, if you have friends that you might be interested uh, and bringing along to class, regardless of where they live. One thing that's nice about Zoom is that we've got people in California, people in England, uh, people all over that are with us this evening. So uh, we would be delighted to have any of your friends come along for the ride. So thanks so much. Thanks for being here. God bless you all.